Welcome to Nemesine, the podcast of the Institute for Research on Women, hosted by Andrea Zerpa and Amina Cuberte. The IRW is an interdisciplinary scholarly hub for feminist research since the 1970s, part of the School of Arts and Sciences at Rutgers, the State University of New Jersey. Nemesine is the Greek goddess of storytelling and as an archetype represents the importance of oral histories. On this podcast, we center conversations about feminist work and research across disciplines through the ancient oral tradition of storytelling. On this episode of Nemesine, we are joined by Dr. Annette Freitag, an award-winning scholar, educator, and critic. Her research focuses on 19th and 20th century landscape architecture. Her quest is to bring new impulses to the profession by bridging the gap between landscape history and contemporary practice. Before joining the Department of Landscape Architecture at Rutgers in the fall of 2016, she taught at universities in Zurich, Basel, Innsbruck, Rapperswil, and Leuven. From 2011 to 2015, Dr. Freytag was the head of research in landscape architecture and head of the LA Theory Lab Topology in the Swiss Federal Institute of Technology. Along with Professor Christoph Girat, they developed the Theory Lab Topology a theoretical framework and tools to recast the potentials of landscape architecture. Dr. Freytag currently teaches the principles of topology to landscape architects, ecologists, engineers, and art historians. One of her award-winning books is just now available in an English edition through the University of Chicago Press, The Landscapes of Dieter Kienist. The German edition has received the DAM Architectural Book Award in 2016 the German Garden Book Award in 2016 as Best Book in Garden History and was selected as one of the most beautiful Swiss books by the Swiss Confederation. Annette's work has appeared in the International Landscape Architectural Journal, Topos, in studies of the history of gardens and landscape design in the Gartenkunst and others. are a trained art historian, but started working on gardens in the mid-1990s and later earned a PhD in landscape architecture. What inspired you to blend art history and theory of design landscapes? Yeah, this is an amazing question. So yeah, I'm, I'm, you know, I was long not sure what I should study. And um, I worked in journalism. I started um, to work in journalism at age 15. Also, you know, to have some pocket money and I loved to work for the youth radio. And then basically I was advised to sign up in macroeconomics and I had this love for art and my parents um, had not a lot of money when I grew up, but they always took me to this amazing travel. So we traveled in entire Italy. I come from the south of Austria. And so I saw all these artworks and I studied both. And so... And I loved it. And then I loved, you know, being an art historian, but it was always about this searching for having an impact on the real world. And through art history and especially architecture, I came into gardens quite quickly. And with the gardens, I really found everything and and also kind of my vocation. So uh, let me explain. It's um, on the one hand, I love to be, you know, connected with art and have this space where you are somehow also detached from society. 
And of course, we also know that art is something that really you need for your survival. I mean, I saw this so beautifully in this exhibition of the former director of the Institute for Research on Women, Nicole Fleetwood, marking time about art production in prisons. And I was deeply touched by that. And but I found really my home in the garden where you have these designed landscapes, you have like plants, you have memories, you have strong like kind of evocation. Um, and you are out of time, but still connected to the present. And there's this space of happiness. So this was one thing um, that was very important to me. And the other thing is that I'm, as a person, quite a political person. And I wanted to have some kind of impact on society in what I do. And I found more and more that this, like, you know, parks and gardens and green spaces, um, they are um, spaces where people from different strata of society can come together. Um, they're very contradictory. So they are spaces of power, but they are also spaces of inclusion. They have this ambivalent um, DNA. And this is something that I'm, I'm still fascinated about. Um, and then the other thing is that in this like group of landscape architecture, or garden architecture, garden historians, it's quite a small group. It's growing and growing internationally. But you have people from all disciplines coming in. So there are art historians, there are horticulturists, there are often people who love English literature or German literature and then come into gardens or landscapes and maybe go out again. Um, engineers, um, historians, archaeologists, you name it. And so being in this like field and learning from all the disciplines for the entire life. So that's, that's really what is extremely intriguing to me. And I don't know, I have the impression people who work with gardens and landscapes, they are just really nice people. So I feel uh, safe in these communities. I didn't always feel safe with art historians. I was quite intimidated by their strong intellect that I also admire, but I sometimes really felt put on the spot and I didn't thrive in this field. I transformed my search for creating a better world in my work with the gardens. And uh, it's really cool to hear that you were an early journalist because that's my major at Rutgers. I studied journalism and women's and gender studies. And I know a lot of people are just like, how do you like, how do you see things in that way? And it's just really cool to see like how you transform that passion through a different medium. So thanks for saying that. Yeah, um, I'm so happy to hear that. Maybe I should uh, specify I'm a radio journalist. So the radio is really my first love. You have to imagine, so I started in the youth radio, but very quickly I came to be this expert to, you know, when, when we did a portrait of a city, I talked about open spaces or it was all somehow connected about garden and landscape, but in the radio you can't see. So I worked a lot, you know, with sound, what is this acoustic dimension also of gardens, landscape architecture. And I, I tried to create a language to create these pictures. When I talked, you know, I took my audience to special places and I explained them what I'm seeing. And so I tried to put them into this mental space with the medium of the word in the radio. And, and somehow I think I do this in my teaching. So I, still they see these pictures you know I'm, I'm showing them also sometimes 
faraway spaces, but I try to create spaces and atmosphere in language, yeah, which I have difficulty sometimes, of course, in English because it's my second foreign language. My first foreign language is French, but I, but I try hard. Thank you. Even now, I totally feel like we're being transported through your words. So landscape architects blend science and art. What unique perspective has your training in the field of landscape architecture equipped you with? Yeah, that's also a beautiful question. Yeah. So, you know, now I teach at the School of Environmental and Biological Sciences, and I teach landscape history. So we have this amazing students that you know are very interested in STEM, but also interested in design and already landscape architecture brings this together. So um, you know, the, the natural sciences, uh, the science approach, and then the design approach. Um, and I think they match beautifully because you know there's a little bit an a bias to say oh natural science or sciences this is very objective they have this data and the other are very intuitive and and creative but i see both sides on both sides so also natural scientists are very creative and intuitive and also you know designers base their work on data so i i see much more you know, like intersections in, in these two parts. But what I want to say, my point is, so in the School of Environmental and Biological Sciences, there, there is also a kind of danger that they see landscapes purely then as ecosystem services or how can landscapes function? Of course, we all want to, you know, improve our health and it's important to go outside. But sometimes what is a little bit, let me say, underrepresented is this like, huge historical, emotional, imaginary dimension of landscape. And also, of course, to address uh, the misuse of power in, in open spaces that, that we have seen, you know, it's very actual um, topic now with, you know, black people in the outdoors, uh, Christian Cooper, he cannot go bird watching. So who is even allowed in the outer spaces and so on? There's a lot to unpack also in landscape history about this. So you see my passion about the field. It's, it's a vast field, yeah? But so basically when I teach my like um, landscape history survey course, I really start in the present and I'm asking what is nature, what is landscape, um, you know, what is form, teach, you know, what are the layers of a landscape and then also, you know, how do we talk about landscape? The ones talk from this perspective of art, the others talk from the perspective of habitat, the others talk from the perspective of political landscapes, so important also. And sometimes people don't find the language. So I, I try to break this up for my students. And then I go back to I start in this Western tradition because it's very strong also in the United States, but I more and more critique also the Western canon. And then I look, you know, how does form emerge? And so from my perspective, you have, you know, this survival. So you, you try to survive in the landscape and you bring form to it, of course, through agricultural practices, horticultural practices, hunting, whatever you do, you might, you know, just have a clearing as a hunting ground, a clearing is a form. And then you have practices, not only survival practices, but also spiritual practices. So from the beginning of interaction with landscapes, and we can beautifully see this with indigenous peoples, and also if we study the wisdom of First Nation people in this country, 
what are the spiritual relationships to the landscape? And then how do they emerge out of the terrain over time? Yeah. And then what can we learn today to react to this? So, so basically um, what I believe is that we had this real rupture with modernity when you were not, you know, uh, limited to work with the material of local parts, you could like overcome, you, you, you can regulate a, a river, you can build a bridge, you, you, you know, in modernity, uh, mankind had this idea, we can do whatever we want, and we do whatever form we want, and we take whatever material we want. And this also merged with this like globalization, what I call flush culture, the admiration of the cheap things, yeah, of flushing, of, you know, not recycling, not reusing. And this brought us basically to, to a kind of climatic catastrophe, but it brought us also to a catastrophe of um, just how things look like. I mean, you know, drive a little bit around New Jersey and you see there was not much thought about where to put a road or, you know, not only say a highway. And so we are really in, we have really passed a kind of breaking point to this. And so if we go back to landscape history, we can get this feeling again for what is accurate to use at the place, what plants are accurate, what materials, um, how can we merge uh, form, but also meaning, and how can we create landscapes that lift us, you know, in our spirits, and that we take out of the only things of how can they function, what can we get from them, what is their, you know, service, ecosystem service, or what is a resource, how we can gain money out of it, yeah? I think it, if you go down in the history of landscape design, landscape architecture gardens, and you see these trias between use, spiritual practice, and you know, creating form out of the terrain, I think you can get the sensibility to better deal with contemporary environments. So I'm sorry that I, it took me so long to explain this, and maybe it's a little bit abstract, but it's so complex. It's something that you sign up to learn and then you learn your entire life. And, and it's even more, I think it's a kind of, it's a way of life. So sometimes I used to say, um, you know, landscape architecture is, is a way of life, more than a discipline to study, if I can say. So I, I say this with a smile, of course. Do you think that other, your colleagues, other people in the landscape architecture field feel similarly? Yes, I think so. I, I think they all, whatever they do, they all want to be on the good side of history. <laughs> I, again, I say this with a love. They want to, you know, give great spaces, healthy spaces um, uh, to the public. Also, you know, not only centered on people, but, but thinking about that people and uh, animals, of course, they create an environment of living beings and we should care for the well-being of all yes i believe that they are that they very much want to do the good fight the thing with nature and this is the tricky thing there's a lot of ideology <laughs> that comes with it and because you everyone wants to do so well emotions can get up really high and you know you, you it, it can be a contested thing because people get so much in their ego because they think, but I want to do the good thing and I'm right on this. And, 
this is the way we have to do it. And of course, we know that we always have to look, you know, how other people see, see things. I mean, I personally, the biggest, like the, the two big learnings curve I did coming from Europe to here is like really learning from the diversity and also understanding that uh, people with different backgrounds have different ways of learning, have different, um, you know, things that they cherish and the other big thing was really learning from First Nation wisdom. So I'm very impressed the way the relationships they have to their plants when they plant a garden and especially with medicinal plants, they would never harvest a plant without having a relationship with this plant. And they are really looking, you know, what is the moon and what is the cycle in the month and so on. And I think it is so sad that in this Western tradition, um, people got so arrogant and mocked all indigenous peoples because they considered the river to be a brother and the mother to be the earth and the sun to be a god. And But looking now in the catastrophe that this Western thinking has brought us, I think we should be much more humble and, and learn, you know, from the people who a really harmonious relationship with nature and only took out what they really needed for survival. So it turns out now looking back that they were the smart ones, you know, and the best people were not, definitely not. I completely agree. I hope that we can all try to implement that practice and give back to the land and respect it. And just to sort of add to the conversation, I was thinking a lot about how when a lot of uh, people my age or even professors talk about climate change, it's often considered like a chore. Like this is something we all need to come together and like fight. Like the word is always fight. We need to fight against climate change. We need to like actively do things. But I really like that your perspective and your discipline uh, as you were talking about it involves a lot of like hope because Yes, there is a lot of like work to be done for sure and like an attitude shift, but just in your discussion on like the disruptiveness of architecture in the way like our in our spirits, um, like sort of makes me think that there is like something, not only just our earth worth fighting for, but like ourselves too. Like there's a whole other way we could be living and we could be having like a relationship with each other, with ourselves, with this world that is worth striving towards and worth you know protecting yeah i totally agree and and i also have to say that and i don't say this just for this podcast i mean i really mean it coming to rutgers and working with the students that's my big hope also i i think these students are wonderful and and you know when i see this next generation emerging so smart so dedicated and also equipped with this humbleness and a, a genuine driving to to make the world a better place so this this gives me a lot of hope because of course the situation right now is really really dire and 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 sometimes i'm i'm just thinking how is this possible you know because you, you have to see so i grew up in the 70s and 80s and when i graduated from high school the the berlin wall came down you know the iron curtain fell so we had this like East-West conflict forever. And there was really this feeling, it's fine now. What, what, what can happen? You know, everything will be good. It's super naive, you know. And then so many years later, we are like 
it's burning on all sides. I mean, like literally. But <laughs> I'm often thinking, especially in this situation, you cannot be a pessimist. You cannot afford to be a pessimist. You, you, you have to be really working on a daily basis on, on this hope and on going forward in a good way. And I mean, look at the history of mankind. They, they were like, and womankind, of course, they were able to do the most amazing things. So yeah, I, I have big, big hopes in this uh, young generation. And, and, and you know, this whole climate movement is driven by school children and, and college uh, students, yeah? So it's really the young generation that is the driver. And uh, yeah, so I really have hope. Me too. You were a trailblazer in European institutions with how you conducted your research, teaching and mentorship to younger female scholars. Can you please talk about your career in Europe? Yeah, I think I am a trailblazer because in the end I succeeded. <laughs> and I was a very old PhD student, but I had a luck that the professor I worked with went to Singapore for a year and asked me to, you know, run the chair and this European chair was like, it was like one professorship, but it had 15 people attached to secretaries and archivists, a, a librarian and, and 15 researchers. So like a company and I did very well. And then this boosted me to become a professor very quickly. So some things also happened by chance in a way. And I say this to encourage people to think very positively about their biographies everything came together in being a professor. From this like success that, you know, was also due to luck, of course, also to hard work, I can encourage women and mentor them. And in general, trailblazer, this is what uh, colleagues call me very often. I always said I'm a really diehard feminist and a bit shocked sometimes to hear that. And also younger women were shocked and they said, you know, I don't believe in, I think we can do whatever we want. I don't want to put in this feminist corner. Um, this is like outdated. When they came, you know, to work at the university and after two years, they said, you were right. It is really hard. No, we have to stick together. We have to be feminist. Yeah. And basically what I did is when I could, I fought extremely hard for my rights, like for my pay, being treated equally when, when you know, like stipends were given. And since I'm in the workforce and I told you I started so early at age 15, I lived discrimination against women. When I came here to the United States, it was like promised land. It's, it's much better here. And I think... You know, it's much better because there are more women represented as professors, but also in departments. And I think when we talk about academia, but other fields, this is the way it has to change. It has to change so that more women are in leadership positions and it has to be a critical number. It cannot be only like one or two. It should be half of the staff, especially talking about women of color. You know, in a way, I had the impression the United States is promised and white women. And it's unfair, you know, I get public education in Europe, excellent, uh, come here, get this professorship, take the place of other people. 
um, yeah, I, I question this. And uh, now that I'm here longer, I also see the problems and and the difficulties. But also, I have to say, I think as women, we never had this amounts of rights and and possibilities and opportunities. And um, being a woman now is the best time to be a woman in history, I would say. I'm going to repeat part of what you just said because I don't think the audio came through clearly. You said, in a way, you think the U.S. is the promised land for white women. That's a very important observation. How do you think we can empower young girls to pursue technical and STEM fields? The, the one thing is, of course, need to get them interested and need to make sure that they have opportunities and they believe in themselves, help them confidence that they can be whatever they want. Yeah. And the more we will have also fantastic women represented or we know about them, just, you know, a book like the rebel girls to find out what you can all be as a woman and you read two little girls already. I think that's, that's amazing because basically if that you can make it, it really starts so early. And, and I'm convinced that I had this resilience throughout my life because I had a father who was like a mother. And this was very unusual in 1970s when I grew up. And I never forgot. And I only found out that, you know, I should be less as a woman. It was already too late. Yeah. Because it's nothing that I ever felt at home or even at school. And I think if you have this energy, when you are 15, 16, 17, 18 already, then you can go a long way. Your research aims to bridge the gap between landscape history and contemporary practice. Can you tell us about your current research at Rutgers? Yeah, I, I'm a lofto and, and and we are just organizing a, an event that is very close, the March to Rutgers Gardens on September 25th, rain date September 26th. So it came out of my current research that is on walking. I'm, you know, walking in gardens is essential. Walking in communities is essential. I work on this for a long time, uh, very strongly from the phenomenological perspective and topological perspective, but it has a, a really, really important activist component. And this is what we want to, you know, do at the March to Rutgers Gardens. So maybe you know that Rutgers Gardens is a beautiful resource, but it's cut up from campus by a series of uh, roads and highways, and it can only be reached by car. There is no bus system, there is no path, and it's really a stone throw away from Cook Campus. You, you could walk there in 20 minutes if there were a path and you could cross a rider's lane. And so on September 25th, we are going to walk from Cook Campus to Rutgers Gardens. There's a cow tunnel in the research farm that only some people know about it. And we would, you know, ask that there will be a bridge over Riders Lane and there will be a bus shuttle from campus so that students, but also the New Brunswick, East Brunswick, North Brunswick communities get access to the gardens. And there's a special focus on two things. The one is like getting underserved community access to the outdoors and getting communities of color access to the outdoors. So, for example, we will also march with Girl Trek who is uh, one of the biggest NGOs to bring um, black women and girls to the outdoors. And the other thing is that we are reflecting on the layers of land at Rutgers. 
the history and the resources. So we will start with the dense land acknowledgement. Um, we will talk about Marcus, you know, from the Scarlet and Black project, what is black history at Rutgers, also, you know, contested and painful history, both indigenous and black histories. Um, then we are going to see what do we have as resources. So there's there are several living labs from SEBS, but we will also want to add some more. Then we have a history of an avant-garde movement fluxes that was very much to also changing everyday life and having, you know, we are going to perform some fluxus performances. Then we will have really nice uh, dance event, the stories of the natural world, some um, actors coming. We have the For His Choir performing in the cow tunnel, some students painting a mural who comes from the Latino community of New Brunswick, studied at Rutgers, uh, went to work in New York, works also about food security. And she also wants to have a vibrant space at Rutgers Gardens where the community of Rutgers and um, the Brunswick townships is engaged. Yeah, so, so this is, you know, it's about the history. It's about the history of the land. It's about the history of Rutgers. It's about the resources we have in the community, but it's also about access opening up. And in fact, um, the initial brainstorming on this project was together also with Nicole Fleetwood, Julia Rita and me. And so Julia and, and I, we are, we are going to make this project happen. And we really hope that this will be like this breaking point where we get access to the gardens. I know we are not the first. And so this is why we do this uh, right now. And we hope that we come at the good moment in time that, you know, under this banner of beloved community um, that we can open this wonderful resource to students and the communities. That's an yeah. incredible project. That would be amazing because that's something I think about all the time is why isn't it more like connected? Why aren't the gardens more connected to our campus? Because they are beautiful and so like well-maintained and it's such um, an amazing project and I can't are, is like everyone invited to come? Because I would love to come. Yes, absolutely. We will have the website up at the end of the week. And then the RSVP, please, yes, march with us. It, it would be absolutely wonderful if you do. And advocate afterwards. You know, the students have the power. If the students want this to happen, it's going to happen. We are doing really an awareness raising um, event. But also, again, showing Rutgers history and Rutgers future. Definitely. Well, thank you so much. I definitely will be there and sharing too. We love to ask our podcast guests to share their zodiac sign with us if they're comfortable doing so. This kind of touches on a little bit the spirituality thing I was thinking about earlier too. And uh, would you like to share your zodiac sign, Professor? Yeah, I'm happy to do so. I'm an Aries. The, the Aries or the Ram is an important sign also in fertility and, you know, the history of uh, landscape uh, memory, I would say. And my ascendant is Sagittarius. So I'm fire and fire combined. And yeah, there's a reason that's, for that. <laughs> that's amazing because I'm a... Um... I'm a Sagittarius sun and Cancer ascendant. Oh, and beautiful. 
Thank you. But I love the fire energy. It's so, it's much needed too. Thank you. Well, Annette, thank you so much for taking the time to be on the Nemesine podcast. This was such an amazing discussion. I learned so much about landscape architecture, but it's really so close to our everyday lives. And bad landscape architecture has really cut us off from the natural world and hurt the earth. So I hope that industries can come together and make things right with people like you. Thank you so much, Andrea. It's always a pleasure. And I, I can only say that the Institute for Research on Women is one of my biggest discoveries since I'm at Rutgers. And it's a home of inspiration and painful discussions that need to be led. And I'm, I'm very honored to, to be part of it. And, you know, at least like a planet that circles around your universe a little bit. Thank you for joining us in this episode of Nemesine. You can find us on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook at RWRutgers.